I'm aware of the fact that we have a number of folks who are visiting, and um, I suspect you might wonder what this Yom Yeshua is about, so I'm glad you asked. (laughs) This is not um, a messianic version of Christmas, in case you wonder. We don't have a Hanukkah bush tucked uh, around the corner here. Um, And folks, over the years, I've heard all kinds of arguments back and forth and back and forth. In case you're wondering, I'm not going to engage in those. Uh, Yes, it's true. We don't know exactly when Yeshua was born. However, uh, what really makes the difference is the fact that that the Son of God uh, took on form, human form, and came to this world and walked among us. That's really what matters. And why do we uh, call it Yom Yeshua? and celebrate it in, in uh, January simply because we, we felt very strongly that the coming of the Son of God to earth was significant enough for us to celebrate. And during the month of December, everybody and their mother is Meshuggi, right? You're not Meshuggi in December. There's a, it seems like there's a greater degree of insanity in December. So we wanted to be sure and take time, and this, that's number one. Number two, um, I have been drawn to bring a series of sermons on what does it mean to be a follower of Yeshua, not just one who believes. Um, and yes, uh, I certainly am not minimizing the fact that we need to believe because followers of Yeshua uh, are required to engage in a life of faith. How do you trust God? But uh, from a Jewish perspective, uh, following Yeshua is uh, like the model of the first century Jews who had rabbis and who followed them and then uh, when the rabbis passed on, they then went on to um, collect, in a sense, um, other disciples and teach them what their rabbis had taught them. And this is exactly what we saw uh, in um, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, where Yeshua said to the, to the disciples, Go and make disciples and teach them to observe the things that I have taught you. In other words, I have walked with you. I have taught you. You have learned. You have learned to put it into practice. Now go and teach others. And so for us, this is our commitment as a congregational mishpacha. Uh, We have taken a determined stand that regardless of which way our culture goes or doesn't go, that we are not going to be bamboozled and hoodwinked and snowed by that, but rather, as the Word of God tells us, that where sin increases, the grace and power of God increases ever more. And so we, we want to live that. So that is why we have been pursuing this series on what does it mean to be a disciple of Yeshua, and um, 
So I want to pause first of all and take a moment and ask that the Lord would, through this process of reading Scripture and discussing it, would speak to each one of us. Thank you, Lord God, that you came to this earth You took on human form. You walked with us. And you gave your life for our sin. And you you died and rose again according to the promises in your word, in the Tanakh. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, that you are always with us by your spirit. And uh, thank you, Lord, that... Your call to us hasn't changed, that you call us to be disciples and to make disciples. And so we pray, Lord, for the ability for each one of us to hear well what that looks like in our language, in our situation, and that we would respond wholeheartedly to your challenge, to your call to us. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So part of what we saw last Shabbat is that Yeshua's call to us to be his disciples is radical. Now, I know in this day and age, the word radical is not exactly user-friendly. Because when we think of the word radical, we think of radical Muslim. You know, the kind of a guy who... um, is predisposed to take a butcher knife and stick it into you or run you over with a car or do something um, similar. Um, However, you cannot read Yeshua's words without coming away with a clear conviction that his call is a radical one. Um, He doesn't want just a little bit of us He wants all of us. And last Shabbat, we looked at at a passage that in which Yeshua said, unless you hate your father, mother, and children, etc., you're not worthy to be my disciple. And we explained the fact that this is a relative term, that our love for Messiah would be so incredible that anything else would appear to be hatred or dislike. So it's a matter of priorities. And we remember that uh, last Shabbat we saw in Luke that um, Yeshua's call to the disciples was that radical and, and that he asked his disciples or commanded his disciples to love. Uh, We also... Notice the fact that last Shabbat that Yeshua said, unless you take the cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciples. And from a Messianic Jewish perspective, that doesn't go down real smoothly because from a Jewish context, if you're raised traditionally, when you think of the sign of the cross, it's not a user-friendly kind of a symbol. Um, For us who have... Uh, family that goes back to Europe, whenever we would see the cross, we would know that they would be after us. So, um, however, 
because the symbol itself is difficult for us to, embra to embrace the reality of the death of Yeshua is something that we brace absolutely and completely because that is a major part of the good news of Yeshua, that he died and rose again. So whether you use the term execution stake or tree or whatever or cross, reality is still, uh, reality is what it is, and that is Yeshua died on a cross, and that the cross for Yeshua represented a radical commitment to do the Father's will because he said, not my will, but your will be done. What defined Yeshua, folks, was not that he was a radical teacher or that he was compassionate and looked out over the multitudes. What defined Yeshua, folks, is the absolute commitment to do the Father's will. So when he says, take up the cross, that's exactly what it means. That what, def what needs to define our, our life is not our agenda and our priorities and our objectives and our dreams, but what needs to define our life is how we listen and embrace God's plans and purposes for our life. Now, that does not mean that we end up uh, dying a slow death, although people use the term death to self. I hate that term, by the way. What it means is that if we embrace God's plans and purpose for us, we will come alive. We will come alive. And we would experience life in, in significance that what we do will not be a bunch of busy work, but it will be a bunch of meaningful work that will count for something and will be productive. So when Yeshua said, take up the cross and follow me, he means for us to say, okay, God, you have the key to the entire house. Every single room in my house is open to you, even the closets with the spiders and the demons and everything else is open to you. And we have a continuation of that kind of theme here. Um, again, this radical call. Yeshua is, by the way, um, teaching and people are milling around him. In this case, he had just completed the so-called Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 uh, through 7. And um, a teacher of the Torah comes to him, um, a scribe, someone who had dedicated their life to writing the Torah. And he, he himself, the scribe, resp respectfully refers to Yeshua as teacher. In other words, he recognizes Yeshua's um, supremacy um, and, and, and greater knowledge of scripture and he says I will follow you wherever you go. Now for, from our perspective, wow, that's a sign of the greatest kind of commitment you can make. But reality is folks that sometimes we get swept away by emotion and we make all kinds of promises to God and to others that we really can't keep. Um and we don't have much details about this the scribe, 
But Yeshua apparently is able to look through him with his x-ray vision and throw out a challenge saying, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, same kind of issue, absolute commitment, radical commitment. And we don't know exactly what had happened. Um, we hear nothing of this scribe from that point on. Now, this is, exactly, this is definitely not what you and I would do. If someone would come up to us and say, I am willing to follow you wherever you go, our inclination is to say, yeah, uh, let me tell you exactly what I'm doing and uh, let me give you uh, the coordinates. You can put them into your GPS and come and follow me. Uh, Yeshua doesn't do that. Our assumption here is that this man turned away. Then somebody else comes to him a disciple, again, someone who had followed Yeshua to some extent and said, I, I, I want to follow you, but first of all, let me go bury my father. Now, from a Jewish, first century Jewish perspective, that was what you were supposed to do. Um, if your parent died, you definitely invest time and effort to honor them because that's one of the greatest commandments in the Torah is to honor your father and your mother. And Yeshua says to, to this fellow, let the dead take care of themselves. Now we need to understand what he is and what he is not saying. He by no means is minimizing the call of the Torah, of Scripture, to honor our parents. He's definitely not saying that. Again, what he's pointing out to is primacy. By the way, we see a similar situation with Elijah and Elisha. Um, the primacy simply means where do you put your priorities? And unfortunately, part of the picture with us is that we have our priorities and then we give God leftovers. You know what I'm saying? It's like, God, I need to do this, 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 and this. Oh, and yeah, I understand. I need to give you some time that I'm going to put in a box and label as spiritual. And I'll check that off and that will be wonderful. And, you know, folks, God is uh, somewhat narrow-minded. He doesn't buy that. He wants, Yeshua sets the bar not just high, but impossibly high. So high we can't reach it. And you're confronted with a basic choice. The choice is either forget it, I'm not interested, walk away like these other guys probably did, or else say, I want to, I'm incapable. Which may be confusing, but it, con it communicates two basic realities to God in this conversation. Yes, I want to be uh, sold out to you, radical. Yet, at the same time, I know who I am. I know what makes me tick. And I realize that I just don't have what it takes. So, yes, I want to do it. But if it's going to take place, I'm going to need empowering. I'm going to need power 
and direction and wisdom, all kinds of stuff from you in order for me to be able to do what you've called me to do. And then learn to depend in patient faith that the power that we need to take care of what it is God put before us, puts before us would be what we actually do. Now, our culture does not work real well with patience and with waiting. You know, we are moving toward a nanosecond everything. And so the notion of waiting for God to act is something that really goes against the grain. It's sort of like uh, uh, taking your fingernails and putting it on, on a uh, chalkboard when we had chalkboards. And God knows us, folks. God knows us. You know, uh, we're not St. Ariel or, or St. Anya or St. Isaac. Uh, in a sense, we are. But God knows us. We, we don't need to prove anything. We We don't need to feel like we need to validate and justify ourselves. We can't snow God, can we? So we simply say, God, I'm willing. Supply what is needed. Give me what I need and show me each and every single day when I get up in the morning how to take those baby steps in which I say, okay, God, I want to do your will. Absolutely. I need for you to give me what it is that is needed in order to carry it out. And then we look and we recognize that our life will become more and more and more closer together to the model that we have of Yeshua. And that's our goal, isn't it? To become more Yeshua-like, I think, I hope. He is our rabbi. He is our, our master. And we, our reality needs to be melded into his reality. And as we see, Yeshua's life is characterized by shalom, by peace and wholeness. Now the section, the other section that um, Hillary read to us is, is pretty incredible. Here, think, think of the picture. Uh, they're in a boat. You know, we're not talking ocean liner or cruise cruise ship we're talking about a fishing boat and the sea of galilee uh can be real calm and then out of nowhere you have the winds coming from the golan heights and um as the niv puts it here without warning a furious storm came on the lake and you go from everything being copacetic everything being mellow looking out over the, uh, the Golan Heights and the, the farms and so on, then all of a sudden, you're about to die. It's not that just that you have waves that are very high, but they're coming washing over your boat. It's very personal. And yet, what is Yeshua's response? He's sleeping. The way it puts it is very, very emphatic. 
It's very terse. It des- uh, Matthew here describes the storm, describes the disciples, and then gives us three words that basics, basically say he himself was asleep. Everybody else was freaking out, and Yeshua was sleeping. It doesn't tell us why he was sleeping, although, you know, it doesn't take a nuclear physicist to understand why Yeshua was sleeping. You, as you read the chapters before, you see he had been teaching on, on this mountain for three days straight. He was busy from morning to night healing people, including casting demons out of people. And we know very clearly that when that took place, energy came out of Yeshua. I know I'm going to sound like a little bit like, woo! But that's when we see, for example, in, in Luke chapter 8, where there was a gal that had a, a bleeding disorder and she touched Yeshua. What did he say? Power went out from me. Meaning that each time he healed somebody, he cast out a demon, that he was diminished in the sense that he didn't have the power. And remember that part of Yeshua's humanity was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit like we are supposed to be in order to do the work God has called us to do. And what happens is we run out of gas and we need to pull up to the gas station and say, God, would you please fill me back up? Yeshua's exhausted. He falls asleep. And his disciples went and woke him. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes, this is not a very mellow transaction. They're not uh, having pure, purely rational thoughts in which they say, okay, now you go over here and you go over here. Let's find out where Yeshua is. No, they go and they physically shake Yeshua, although it doesn't explicitly say that, but that's the implication, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. In other words, they were terrorized. They were freaked. And so, did they do what they were supposed to do? The answer, of course, is yes and no. They knew Yeshua was in the boat. They went to get him. That's what they were supposed to do. But Yeshua zooms in and understands where their emotional makeup is at that point. And he doesn't say, everything's fine. You know, I'll just mumble something and everything will be cool. He said, why are you so afraid? And the word there in Greek means cowardly. You guys have been around me enough to know that things are under control. You of little faith. I am with you. And that, folks, is part of what also defines our life. 
is that when the storms come, which they do and they will, we have to stop and pause, catch our breath and say, okay, Yeshua's in a boat with us. And, and do we get freaked? Yes, we all get freaked. We all have fear buttons. But we need, we need to remember that God is with us. In a sense, that's what Matthew is about. You have like bookends from, from the beginning to the end. The bookends, uh, the beginning is Matthew one twenty three. A child is born whose name is Immanuel. And then at the very end, Matthew twenty eight twenty. You better believe that I'm always with you. So the disciples knew that Yeshua was there. And they went to get him. But their attitude, their attitude, folks, and that's the biggie. What is our attitude when, when we enter into crisis situation? Do, do we believe at that point that it's up to us to fix everything because God practically is not in the picture? Do you realize that a lot of times we are like practical atheists? We say we believe in God and so on and so forth, but when push comes to shove, we really don't need Him. Our life, we really not change decisively if God was taken out of the picture in our mind. Why? Because we're the ones who are doing it. We're the ones who are figuring it out. We're the ones who are taking care of business. We really don't need God. So we may have that attitude. There's a problem. I'm going to fix it. Or there, we may take an intermediary step that says, okay, God is with me. Uh, Lord, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Would you put some pixie dust on it? And, and bless what I'm wanting to do. And then at some point in our growth to maturity, in our relationship with God, we say, okay, God, you have things under control. You have a plan. I want your plan. Not my cute and clever plan. Your plan. And we invite him to act and take charge and intervene in the situation takes us a while to get into that perspective. And it's part of our growth in maturity in our relationship with God and our faith relationship with God. And what Yeshua looks at them, he points to two things with them. He first of all says, you guys are gutless. Well, in their shoes, I'm not sure I would be big, bold, red, and etc., he said, you're cowardly and you don't have a whole lot of faith. Now, if you, if, if you notice the way Yeshua relates to people, to the very weak, to the prostitutes, tax collectors, he said, knock it off. That's it. He's very, he's very gentle. To the Pharisees and the religious establishment, he gets in their face, gives them absolutely no quarter. And then you have the disciples which kind of seem to be in between. And what Yeshua says to them is not what I would consider very gentle. This is rebuke. And in the Gospel of, of Matthew, 
in the record that we have of Matthew, Yeshua rebukes them five times. Five times because of their pitiful faith. I'm not going to go through all of them, but, but if you go through Matthew, you'll find all the references in which Yeshua says, you of little faith. In other words, your faith is pitiful. You know, sort of the, um, on, on a, fall, on a uh, strange planet, uh, you would say, Scotty, beam me up. There's not a whole lot of faith life here. But that's the re re rebuke. And the truth is, I don't know about, about you, but I sure can relate and identify with, with these disciples. Because we vacillate from having good faith and say, yes, God, you're right. You're in control. You're, you're, you're doing things. And then God allows us to come into a storm situation where our, our faith just becomes shrinks and, and 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 becomes almost like nothing. And I remember a time like that. This is um, about twelve years ago. I had been diagnosed with melanoma, and uh, it, it was a fairly traumatic period. I'm I'm a sun lover, and I was told that you better stay away from the sun and. The, you have clothes that are sun, sun unfriendly and so on and so forth. And uh, that was also the year that our Isaiah, our grandson, came to live with us. And so at some point, for me and for Joy as well, you know, you, you kind of get flattened. You know what I'm saying? Um, you're, you want to do the right things, but you don't have a whole lot of affect, a whole lot of emotion. So my faith was there, but it, it felt like someone had taken and flattened it and kind of made it pancake-ish. And I remember um, I presided over a uh, bat mitzvah up in Estes Park, and on the way back we were coming, and one of our gals just looked at me as I'm driving. She says, I, you know, I really felt like God wants me to share these scriptures with you. Okay, to share it with the rabbi. Okay, I get it. <laughs> and so she rattles off a bunch of scriptures, and I'm, I'm, I'm listening and driving. And when I come home, I write all of them down, and I start to chew them over and digest them, memorize it. And God did something to, to kind of <laughs> blow some life into, into the rather pathetic little faith I had at that point. And I made a, a determination at that point. Okay, God, I want to go for broke with you. And would you please come and do your deep work in me? Uh, none of this half-hearted stuff. And I've, I've told people about that from time to time. And the response had been, you said, what? But folks, I, I, to this day, 12 years later, I believe that's the only way to fly. For us as followers of Yeshua, as his disciples, we either go for broke and make a radical commitment or we go worship Buddha, God forbid. We either say, God, 
Here it is. I, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to do what you tell me to do. I don't want to say, eh, Lord, this is interesting, but, um, you know, I, I think you're being a little hard on me, so I, I'm not going to go there right now. And sometimes we do that. I mean, it's foolish because Father knows best, right? No, you don't believe me. Father knows best, folks. And we understand that the only way that we can live life is by radical obedience to what it is that God wants. And, and at least at this point, the word radical is a comfortable word, a user-friendly word. Why? Because I understand at this point that a radical commitment to the Lord means I am also open and receptive to the fuller blessings He has for me. And you look at Yeshua's life, and His life is balanced. His life is under control. He's not freaking out. And he gets up, he rebukes the winds and the waves. And it takes five years and eventually the waves settle down. And they... No, instantly, instantly, the waves die down, the winds stop, everything, everything changes on the dot. And this is indicative of the work of the power of God, folks. The real thing is that when he is at work, Things change decisively in our life. And I don't know about you. I want to see that. I want to see that. And so the people in the, in the boat, the disciples are, are again freaking out. Because this is not what a first century rabbi would do. I mean, you know, he would uh, argue about this point of the Torah or that point of the Torah uh, is this ritual purity or is not ritual purity and so on and so forth. Uh, occasionally, you would have a guy who was a, ostensibly a miracle-working rabbi. But th 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 they really would not do anything major. And Yeshua, the disciples recognize here at this point that they're looking with someone who is from a, different, a totally different caliber. Totally different caliber. By the way, uh, in those days, the rabbis determined that when Messiah would come, he would do three or four what has been called the Messiah class miracles. He would do things that only the Messiah could do. He would heal a person born blind. He would heal a leper. And he would cast out a demon out of someone who was mute. Because typically in those days... If you were doing exorcism, I really don't know how that works, you would have a dialogue with the demon and then use formulas and basically say, in the name of God, I command you to come out. Well, if there's a person who is mute, you've got a basic problem. So Messiah would be someone who could cast out demons even from that people, those kind of people. But what Yeshua is doing here is several orders of magnitude way above and beyond what they had experienced. 
He's exercising authority. He rules not only over sickness and, and powers of darkness, but the waves and the winds, which means he's got to be God. We talk about deity here. Someone who is the creator of the universe has that kind of power to, to be able to look at the winds and waves and say to them, Shah! He has that kind of authority. to cause the winds and the waves to die down so the boat can continue to go where it needs to go. And by the way here, folks, the issue here isn't to make the disciples comfortable to say, there, 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 everything's under control. The point is not. That's not what God is interested in in our life, folks, to make us feel comfortable. To take the things that are difficult and, and mumble something and things die down and everything's comfortable. What God is interested in doing, folks, is getting his agenda and his program completed. Which may or may not involve you and I being comfortable. That's not high up on his agenda. And so... Understanding that and coming to terms with that takes attitude readjustment, doesn't it? Because the universe is no longer about me and my need to be okay, my, my need to have things under control. The universe is about the will of God getting done in the midst of all the winds and waves and insanity in, in our culture. And so for us as 21st century disciples of Yeshua, we have a basic reality. Which way are we going to go with this? Are we going to say, God, I'll follow you when I can? Or I'm committed to following you, period. period and yes I'm clueless yes I don't have the power but yes I want to go there my nose is pointing that direction and I'm going to need the power from you to be able to do that which means that even when, when we are pulled emotionally like the disciples we have to be willing to say God you're bigger than my emotions. You're bigger than me freaking out. And I give you control of my emotions. It's a tough one, isn't it? I give you control of my emotions. I give you control of my thought process. Because I want you to be in charge of my life. And, and particularly, uh, gentlemen, we like to think that we are eminently rational Logical at any and all given times until somebody who is a bit more sensible than we are points out that we, like everybody else, is emotionally driven. And then part of the process is recognizing the fact, A, 
we cannot be driven by anything other than the Spirit of God leading, directing, empowering us. That's the goal, folks. And we take baby steps, and we move in that direction. We point our noses in that direction, and we say, God, I want to go there. I want to go there. And then learn to trust in God's care, in God's power, God's infinite wisdom, then who would take us and say, okay, come on. Come on, let's go. You were here today. I want you to be here tomorrow and here the day after. And at some point here a year from now, we look back and say, wow, God, that was pretty cool. You know, we've gone through some storms. The things have been challenging and difficult. You took us through the storms, and somehow you said to the storms, Shah, and you brought the boat where the boat needed to go. That's really what it is about, folks. Yeshua's in the boat. He wants to take the boat where it needs to go. And the challenge for us is simply to invite him and give him control. That's what it means to be a disciple of Yeshua. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, uh, thank you that you know us. Goofy sheep that we are. Thank you, Lord, that you know us. When we make all kinds of glowing promises, commitment to you, and then back out because we are driven by fear and all kinds of other thoughts and emotions. Thank you, Lord, that you are in a boat with us. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, that you promised you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for the comfort and confidence that that gives us. I pray, Lord God, for each one of us, regardless of where we are in the process of discipleship, regardless how much of our life we have given over to you, how much of our house we have yielded control to you, we pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us, reveal your plans and purposes, Give us, Lord God, the wisdom to recognize that with obedience come blessing. Give us, Lord God, a discerning and obedient heart. We ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.